The reading this morning is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, starting at verse 15. And it's on page 985 of the Church Bible. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by, their, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This is the word of the Lord. When I was uh, given this passage, I didn't say, thanks be to God. I said, oh, wonderful. Um, and you look at a lot of commentators and, and they do a series through letters or, or the Gospels. And they seem to skirt over this one for some reason. Um, some of them leave it out altogether. But I'm not going to do that. We'll move in and see what we can come up with. I believe that for every negative, and there are plenty of negatives here, there is a positive. Every cloud has a silver lining. And uh, we'll just try and concentrate on the positives here. I've got some ideas. So it's not a particularly uplifting passage in the main. But Psalm 119, verse 105, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible illuminates itself in you and I can walk in its glow. I'm a country boy. In my early teens, I spent much time on uneven pathways in rural Devon. At dusk, we would be foolish to continue without a torch, some source of light. It could be slippery mud, a rock, a rut that could turn your ankle, or even, from time to time, an adder. They're quite nasty little things, and if you're a vulnerable person, they could even be fatal. But even for uh, a sturdy boy like me, it would be very unpleasant to have got bitten by one, and I avoided them like the plague. Our reading lights up a problem of serious sin and its consequences. It's about confronting those who sin, specifically against us. Um, you probably see a footnote if you've got the NIV saying, some manuscripts add against us. And, and really that's the important thing, because if we are confronting people about their sinful stop that has nothing to do with us, we take on the role of a vigilante, and that's not what we should be doing. I think as an aside here, I should point out that... Uh, from verse 17, where it says uh, that you should tell the church. Um, in the early church, there was only a small group. And that small group would know everybody. 
if you didn't know everybody, your, your church, your life could be in danger. You would have to know them well. So any specific sin would be pretty much known by everybody anyway. It was just uh, clear in the air, bringing it out in the open. I don't think it's particularly appropriate to modern churches where you've got hundreds of people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, or if you're in South Korea, 450,000 people. Do they all need to know about the sin of one particular person? Clearly not. Thankfully, small sins are addressed here, or my neighbors would be complaining about the constant queues outside my house. We confess those daily to seek God's forgiveness. There's a word in this reading that occurs twice, and once earlier in Matthew chapter 16, and in no other gospel. Did that word jump out at you? Can anybody tell what that word is? Okay. It's the word church. Jesus was talking about a church. Now, from our thinking, the church didn't exist when those words were spoken. We regard the church as being uh, starting, really, at the time of Pentecost, obviously sometime after Jesus had died. But the early church referred to the church as being the body of Christ. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 to 23, speaking of Jesus, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. And around the same time in um, Colossians chapter 1, uh, which Christine actually uh, shared with us on Thursday at the prayer meeting, um, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, Matthew was written around the time of those Pauline letters, round about A.D. 60, 30 years after the events contained therein. So what's that all about? The word church is ecclesia and means the called out ones, the ones who have responded the call to follow me. The teachings Jesus shared with his disciple, disciples are as true now as they were then. We are the modern-day disciples. They were the embryonic church. Our reading is a stern warning. The Bible does deal in extremes because it has to. There is either eternal glory with Jesus in heaven or the unthinkable alternative of being removed from Jesus forever. Make no mistake about that. One or the other. Most, and I mean most, people think in vague terms concerning the afterlife. Maybe of flying through a Shangri-La Valley or some ethereal seaside resort, which is nothing special but okay when the sun shines. There is a narrow path and a broad path. There is no middle path. I've heard sermons on this passage, which are essentially a paraphrase of what it says, which is, I suppose, very helpful for those people who can't read. We do need to take it in context, however, and not apply everything without thought and prayer. The disciples were on a war footing. All the disciples, save John, 
would die in that campaign. Disobedience in the classroom can be disruptive. I know all about that, being a teacher. Disobedience on the battlefield might well be catastrophic. The fact remains, however, that serious and unrepented sin within the church cannot be tolerated. In my experience in various churches, it usually doesn't get that far. I've had personal attacks from church members. Had I done something wrong? Well, certainly but nothing that would necessarily impinge on them. The most helpful advice I was given at teacher training college was walk into the classroom as if you own the place. Exude confidence, even if you don't feel it. That certainly worked. But maybe it could sometimes be construed as arrogance. I was a deacon at a church in, uh, not far from here, not in Worthing, but in West Sussex, at the end of a deacon's, I was only 27, at the end of a deacon's meeting, one of our, my fellow deacons came out, followed me out and said, excuse me, I said yes, and he said, I want you to know that I find it very difficult to like you. Um, oh, <laughs> perhaps I should try being somebody else. Uh, I didn't know what to say. I had no hard feelings against him, but he was certainly harboring feelings against me. I don't know if it was ever resolved particularly. I just thought, well, if he doesn't like me, tough, really. It doesn't really matter. I can't do anything about it. There's another man there who did make life very difficult for me because he was actually telling lies about what I was doing as a youth leader. They were completely untrue, all of them, and everybody would have known that. They knew me well. But he was determined to make life difficult for me. He was a very, very unpleasant character. So I resolved that I would go and speak to him, as Bible says, and uh, he got wind of that and uh, realized that speaking to him might not be very pleasant. <laughs> but I'm not a, an aggressive person. I never would be. I would always just uh, shake his hand and not his throat. And when I sought him out, I realized that he'd left the church of his own accord. He went off to do trouble somewhere else. Where would that be? It was Hosanna. I arrived at Hosanna 30 years ago with Sarah, and we walked in, and there he was. And he was all smiles, all friendly, that I could never been before, because he was so busy making life difficult for somebody else. That somebody else is a good friend of mine, still. And I said to him at the time, an insult from that man is high praise indeed. Don't worry about it. It's amazing how one person can cause so much trouble in a church and they're not needed and they're not wanted. In my experience in various churches then, this kind of thing has happened. I've been to so many churches over the years of different denominations and it has always been a really unhelpful experience. But usually... A low-level chat over a cup of coffee can sort it out. Some witnesses to the conversation, as mentioned in this passage, can prevent it being misreported afterwards. The final recourse is exclusion if departure has not already taken place. The paramount concern is the health of the body of Christ, but the needs of the individual are also valued highly. What appears to be the last straw here? 
Matthew 18 verse 17 says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Obviously, they cannot remain on board if they're hampering God's work. But does that mean they're lost? The word pagan in the NIV is not the best. This comes from the Greek word ethne, from which we get the word ethnic. The vast majority of translations use the word heathen, and that's not a great word either, because its meaning has changed. We now think of heathen as barbaric or uncivilized, but ethne is better translated nations, being anyone outside of Judaism. So far from being cast out, the nations are right for inclusion. In Matthew 28, further on, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Ethne, same word. So they're not lost. Just really have to start again. And Peterson in the message says, on this verse 17, is how he interprets it. If you won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch. Confront him with the need of repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. And the tax collector... Is he without hope? Well, Matthew wrote this, and before he responded to the call of Jesus, he himself was a tax collector. I was bemused by verses 18 and 19, and as often the case, Charles Spurgeon came to my aid. Each church has the keys of its own door. When those keys are rightly turned by the assembly below, the act is ratified above. The end of our reading has great positive lessons, but there is positivity here. It seems to describe a church where a bomb has exploded. So let's backtrack a bit. When is the best time to call in the bomb disposal officer? When it's gone off or before that, when it needs diffusing? The answer is obvious, but we learn slowly. Where our physical health is concerned, early intervention is the key approach. Would you like this jab or that medication? What about a blood test? Perhaps we'd better check over a few issues. What is this new approach? Had the NHS been issuing free Bible studies? Or is it that dealing with problems early can save a lot of time and expense? It's good thinking, whatever. And we need that approach in our Christian communities. If only our local churches had half the staying power of secular clubs. I've lived in Worthing for 30 years, and I've seen many churches who seem to be in competition with the Mayfly. Lightening the church to the human body is a well-rehearsed theme of numerous sermons because it's a helpful one, and it's something we can readily understand. We all have our different uses in maintaining the health of the whole body, which would not be complete and fully functioning without any single part. Sometimes, however, the body develops an infection or is host to a virus which can spread and cause harm. These cannot be ignored and have to be dealt with. So on the positive side, what do we need to do to avoid the sad scenario of our reading? Jesus was and is good news personified. What does he want from his local church communities, the symbols of his body? Let's ponder the greatest commandment. It has two strands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we properly apply that to our lives, loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and love others as we would wish to be loved by them, 
the bomb is perfectly diffused. Nothing of our own making can go wrong. What purpose do you serve in the body of Christ, the church? I believe we have a service Sunday coming up, and it's always an ideal time for self-assessment. It's long been considered that the appendix does not perform any important function and that removing it does not cause any long-term problems. What am I saying here? That you may be useless? I could not possibly know that. Only you and God know that. What does useless mean? It means not serving any purpose, without useful qualities, of no practical good. To be called useless is hurtful. To consider oneself useless is devastating. You may feel you have serious health issues or just frail in advancing years, resigning yourself to being a bit of an appendix. But hold on a minute. Recent thinking suggests that the appendix does serve a purpose as a store for important positive bacteria, which is very beneficial to the body. And that can be called upon when needed. If that is so, are we alive and alert to the possibility that our spiritual valves may need to be opened and the resources released to do their life-enhancing work for the whole body? Yes, you might say, all very well. But what specifically can I do with my limitations? Tell me in words of one syllable. Okay, challenge accepted. You can pray. Spurgeon is regarded as the Prince of Preachers, and I'll go along with that. But when visitors would come to Spurgeon's church, he would take them to the basement prayer room where people were always interceding. Then Spurgeon would declare, here is the powerhouse of the church. If you have a heart for prayer, you become the heart, the powerhouse of the body. Without the heart, the body dies. Verse 20 is a real endorsement of the small group. Two or three gather together, prayer partners or a house group. It is no less effective than having the whole church together, no less powerful than the largest congregations in the world. With Jesus in the midst, the body is complete and will function perfectly well. A 19th century lay minister called Samuel Gordon said, if there are two persons praying, there are three. If three meet to pray, there are four praying. There is always one more than you can see. Jesus wants to protect his body, the church. He wants nothing to damage it. He protects each individual. He has promised to be in the midst, not standing in the wings, when two or more are there in his name, be it a prayer room, a comfortable domestic lounge, or even a fiery furnace. Jesus is there also. So what is the main lesson today? Seems to be a good number. But for me, it is that Christians really need to be preemptive, proactive, productive, and above all, prayerful. It is Rick Warren who said this, only you can be you. God designed each of us so that there would be no duplication in the world. No one has the exact same mix of factors that make you unique. 
That means no one else on earth will ever be able to play the role of God that God has planned for you. If you don't make your unique contribution to the body of Christ, it won't be made. That is a sobering challenge. Perhaps it's something we should all think about in the coming days. Amen.